You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast about the Dark Feminine. My name is Breach Burke, and I'm your host for these episodes. This week we are going to talk about the Erinyes, otherwise known as the Furies, or as the Dirae. And these are figures in Greek mythology who are actually much older than uh, the Olympian gods. Uh, it's actually said that the Furies were probably um, born out of the... Well, what actually, okay, in, in Greek mythology, there are the, there's the episode, there is the... Um, union of uh, Oranos and Gaia, okay, the, the sky and the earth, uh, which is eventually ended uh, after she produces a whole lot of children that Oranos refuses to allow to be born. You know, he keeps, um, <clears throat> he's ashamed of some of the monstrous children that they produce and he shoves them under the earth. Uh, as, a, as a professor of mine once said, uh, it's kind of like taking, your ch- taking a woman's children and trying to shove them back into the womb. Uh, which Gaia doesn't take kindly to, so she asks one of her children to help her. And, of course, Kronos, um, or Saturn in the Roman, he steps up to the plate and taking the sickle that his mother's given him when the father comes to mate with her, he cuts his uh, genitals off and they fall into the ocean and there are drops of blood everywhere and out of those drops of blood, um, among other things that are born, are the Furies or the Erinyes, or the Erinyes, I'm sorry. It's a very, it's a very difficult word to say. Um, as much as we've, I've studied classic um, ancient Greek, and I, you know, is, and though I have studied it, I will not, I do not call myself anything like an expert. Uh, the pronunciations there are sometimes a bit difficult. So the Arrhenius, um are, <clears throat> you know, are these these women who were born. Uh, so they predate uh, the Olympian gods, or at least they're somewhat, they're somewhat contemporary, but they are. Uh, they are considered to be part of sort of the Titan lot. They're older than um, than the than the Olympians, and they and they come out of that um, match between Oranos and Gaia. Now, other versions of their stories suggest that they're children of Nyx, the goddess of night. Um, <clears throat> regardless of which versions uh, you you look at, um, it's very clear that the Erinyes represent um, Erinyes, I'm sorry, represent very old forces. Uh, in the universe. Now they they're given there's depending again there's some some of them have uh, a a larger infinite number of of women who are part of the Erinyes. Um but there's generally considered to be three. Uh there's Tisiphone, uh there's <clears throat> Megera and there's Electa. Okay, and these are considered to be the three uh <clears throat> these these are identified as the three names that uh, are associated with the Furies. And they're, they're sort of described as goddesses of retribution, uh, generally punishing uh, humans for things that are done outside of the natural order. Um, now, it's probably a little bit more precise than this. And what I want to talk about today in this episode on the Arrhenius is that, first of all, uh, yeah, they, they definitely are associated with retribution. Uh, they are boundary setters. Okay, there's that element. Uh, Heraclitus makes a reference to the Arrhenius and um, the idea of the sun, whether it's, it, you know, the sun's orbit, you know, it says the sun is about the size of a foot, and if it stands a foot outside of its orbit, the Arrhenius will, pu- you know, uh, Arrhenius will push it back. And um, in older Greek art, they're always portrayed, they sort of look like other portrayals of goddesses. They look like probably normal Greek women, right? But once we get to Aeschylus and we get to the, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, the, the, the Greek plays about the Erinyes, uh, particularly the Oresteia, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, uh, now we're seeing these scary women with snakes for hair who are kind of um, monstrous in their appearance. And then there's another um, incarnation, if you will, of the Erinyes or the Furies. Uh, which are mentioned by, um, <clears throat> by, well, first, they're, they're, it's sort of the, the platonically influenced Erinyes, uh, and that's what you see in the Aeneid with Virgil. 
So, and at that point, um, their whole purpose and attitude and everything else is completely and totally different from what you see in the ancient Greek. Um, so I want to get into, um, you know, these, the, these, these differences um, about these women. So let's talk about some of their description. Um, certainly by, time, by Roman times, um, Ovid refers to them in Metamorphoses as the Sororis uh, Genetai Nocte, the night-born sisters. Okay, so there's the idea of them being um, children of night. And he says, um, Divinities implacable, doom-laden, sat guarding dungeons, adamantine doors, combed the black snakes hanging in their hair. Tisiphone, disheveled as she was, shook her white hair, and tossed aside the snakes that masked her face. Uh, malign Tisiphone seized a torch steeped in blood, put her robe all in red, dripping gore, and wound a snake around her waist. Okay, there's this 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 vision of them as these horrible women, um, <clears throat> in black and red, dripping with blood, um, you know, um, and carrying snakes. Uh, this is a much later uh, conception of the um, Erinias, and I want to talk because they're also conceived of in Greek thinking as both uh, the Semnifei, which means the good goddesses, and also as the, um, uh, what's, what's the word, uh, the Eumenides, okay, um, in the, the end of the Oresteia, uh, which is the, the saga of Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, Agamemnon being the general of the Trojan War, and Orestes, the son left to avenge his death after his wife kills him. Um, the last play in that set is called the Eumenides, which means the kindly ones, and it makes reference to the Erinias. Okay, so um, so yeah, so now again, in in the kind of um, what do we want to call this in our in our modern uh, dualistic paradigm about good and evil, where do we put the uh, Erinias? Are they good? Are they evil? Um, you know what? What are they? Because it it seems like they are they are both in a lot of ways. So let's get into um, the the definitions here. Um, let's see. Uh, I just want to find uh, where I want to start here. Yes, it's Virgil that claims that they're they're born of, as children of night, um, <clears throat> and the Orphics, of course, who are kind of the bridge people, um, in my opinion between ancient Greek religion and what we think of as modern religion, uh, they saw the, the Furies or the Erinyes as the children of Hades and Persephone, um, the, the, um, the, the king and queen of the underworld. Okay. Um, now, here's the thing. Um, they, the Erinyes, when they, when they appeared as bringers of justice, now, one thing to remember, and I think I've said this before, is that the ancient Greeks, ancient Greek religion is not like our modern religion. Our modern religion is ethical. And the ethical nature of religion probably comes from Plato and, and his successors. And also from uh, the way Christianity manifested itself um, in Europe and in the Roman Empire. And, you know, so once once you get into ethics, and of course, Orphism has a tremendous amount to do with this, this ethical inflection, whether that was its original intention or not. Um, there's definitely um, <clears throat> the sense of certain actions being, um, you know, when, when we think of the gods and the behavior of the gods, you know, when the first time Xenophon says, uh, well, you know, Zeus and his philandering, you know, um, him and, you know, cheating on his wife all the time. That's not acceptable behavior for a god. This is the first, some of the first times we're seeing ethics being brought in. The gods are not being understood for what they are. And this is something I'm kind of hoping to unravel. You know, don't, don't just assume that the gods are representative forces of good or evil. You're going to get so confused and so wrapped up because there are good gods, supposedly good gods, that do horrible things, and supposedly bad gods that do very, very good things. So it's, um, and, and not necessarily consistently on either count. So, um, what there, so first of all, um, there's the idea of the Arrhenius, as Heraclitus mentions, that the idea that they keep, um, they keep the natural order, not only the idea of keeping the sun within its bounds, uh, if we look at an example from the Iliad, um, at some point, um, Achilles, when he finally enters the battle, 
uh, his horse, Xanthus, decides to start uh, talking to him and prophesizing about his death. And he tells the horse, why are you telling me this? I, you know, I already know that I'm, you know, I, I already have a prophecy about my ending. You don't need to repeat it. And it's said at that moment, the Erinyes uh, decide to shut the horse's mouth. Why? Because it's unnatural for a horse to speak. Um, this is where they kind of get the reputation as maintaining what we think of as the natural order. The other things that Erinyes have to do with are what we would call the familial order, okay, or the oikos, having to do with the oikos, so the household. Um, because it seems like the crimes that they punish are crimes within the household, not crimes of spouses or people outside the family. If a woman marries a man and that man does terrible things, the Arrhenius are not really necessarily part of that, but intrafamilial crimes. Um, we've got the... Uh, if we think about the, you know, a brother killing a sister, or in the case of Aristides, a son killing his mother. This is, this is a direct crime against the immediate family, and that is something that the Arrhenius uh, have, a, have a particular um, uh, vendetta against. And it's been theorized uh, by Sarah Isles Johnston that maybe, perhaps this is because uh, the Arrhenius themselves were born of a familial crime, the son uh, castrating his father. Okay, so may, and you know, who knows whether that's accurate or not, but you know, that is at least one theory that has been uh, put forth. Um, I would, um, now, let's talk about the Oristia for a moment. The Oristia, um, let's, let's just give some background for people who don't know the story. Now, Agamemnon is one of the great generals in the Trojan War. He's one of the central figures of the Iliad, and it's his quarrel with Achilles right in Book One that kind of sets the tone of the whole narrative. Uh, now, the Iliad only covers a few months towards the end of the Trojan War, and not the very end. It kind of covers like a maybe a six-month period, maybe um, towards towards the end of the war. Some of you might might argue that it's less than that, but they. Um, but it covers this particular period, and we rely on the epic cycle of, um, of writings to kind of fill in the details on, on the very end. Um, and <clears throat> Agamemnon, I mean, he's considered to be a great general in the war in spite of his bad behavior in the beginning, which he repents of, claims he's been deluded. Um, and that is when he, uh, he has, you know, as part of the spoils of war, what a lot of Greek generals did was they, um, you know, not only did they steal the riches of the towns that they uh, conquered and looted, but they took the women uh, as concubines or as slaves, sex slaves or as lovers or whatever. And um, interesting idea, by the way, I should, I should, I should kind of mention this. Um, it was brought up in a book by Jonathan Shea called Achilles in Vietnam. And it's a fascinating um, comparison of sort of modern military difficulties um, as they relate to... Um, you know, uh, these sort of, you know, as they, and, and how the Iliad um, and, and the situations of the soldiers in the Iliad um, may actually reflect, accurately reflect military psychology. And one of the things he says is that the idea was that um, if a conqueror came in and killed your spouse, okay, if you were a woman, and you were taken away as a, a slave or a concubine, um, that you were grateful because, you know, or that you would, you would fall in love with your conqueror because he obviously was stronger than your husband. Now, that's kind of an interesting thought to give pause to. Um, and I'll probably talk about it uh, in a future episode somewhere. But uh, if you, probably the more 20th century comparison, I suppose, would be the sort of the Charles Atlas ads of the uh, the ninety pound ninety six pound weakling who sits there with his girlfriend and gets the sand kicked in his face by the guy with the big muscles who then runs off with his girlfriend who is obviously impressed by the strength of the other guy, and um, this kind of plays into a whole masculine narrative about strength and virility and manhood, and it's obviously the more manly men who are attractive to the women. So if, you're, if you prove yourself to be not as manly, then your wife will be very happy to be taken away by somebody who is more manly than you. 
and uh, this is part of the rubbish that uh, you know that infects us in the 21st century with uh, toxic masculinity. But anyway, you, you you see that this idea is certainly as old as the ancient Greeks, and um, <clears throat> so that's why you'll see these concubines and these lovers, you know, who who are just just adore their their captors, and. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. So Agamemnon, he and Achilles have a fight because he's expected to give his concubine back because Apollo has sent a plague. Because the woman he has taken as his concubine is um, the daughter of a priest of Apollo who has brought, you know, a ransom to get his daughter, you know, in gifts to bring his daughter away. Agamemnon rejects them. And uh, then a plague is sent by Apollo at the request of the father who is uh, Chryses. And uh, eventually, um, he, Agamemnon is persuaded to give Croesus, the, the girl, up, you know, back to her father. Um, and then the plague is lifted, but his terms are that he wants Briseis, the concubine of um, Achilles, that he's going to take her for himself. Uh, and there's a whole <clears throat> um, discussion of how this is, it's like somebody getting a Congressional Medal of Honor and having somebody take it away, you know, like, because, well, I, I decided I want that. And so Achilles, feeling betrayed, decides to step back from the war, and this actually was what causes most of the action, for, for most of it. I don't think he comes back into the... The Iliad is 24 books or chapters long, and I don't think Achilles reappears until at least book, you know, 16 or 17. So it's, um, you know, his and his stepping back causes a tremendous loss of life among the, what we think of as the Achaean or the Greek warriors. So... There's a lot here. But in any case, after the war's over, Agamemnon returns home. Now, it's important to remember that before the war, this is another piece that's not mentioned in the Iliad, uh, Agamemnon um, and his and the soldiers are caught at Olus. Um, They're looking to sail away to Troy to, you know, uh, continue the war or whatever. And uh, one of the soldiers makes a very stupid comment might have been Agamemnon himself, I'm not remembering the details at the second, but um, about being a you know, better hunter than Artemis, which is a stupid thing to do because Artemis then you know, says, okay, fine, I'm going to just calm all the winds and you're not going to be able to sail anywhere. And the only thing that will appease her is a virgin sacrifice. So Artemis, we're going to talk about Artemis in, in a very soon upcoming episode because she is... Um, uh, she is considered to be one of the Olympians, one of the sort of civilized goddesses, but, um, you know, but she is also, uh, she has her, very, she very much has a dark and, uh, Kathonic kind of side to her as well. Um, but Artemis demands a virgin sacrifice, and so what Agamemnon ends up doing is telling his wife Clytemnestra that, uh, to send their daughter Iphigenia for a wedding to Achilles. Poor Achilles is kind of, well, maybe, or maybe not poor Achilles, but he's in the middle of a lot of this. And so the daughter is sent as if prepared for a wedding, and then instead, it turns out, she's going to be sacrificed to get fair winds for the Trojans. And the way that this ends is that either... We never hear about Iphigenia actually being killed. It's either she's replaced by a deer at the last moment, and Artemis spirits her away to be a priestess, or she becomes the goddess Hecate, which is what Hesiod actually says in the Catalog of Women. And... That's a rather uh, profound statement that I think I would like to wait to talk about, because that could be a big digression here. But um, nonetheless, uh, Clytemnestra has lost her daughter, whether to be a priestesshood of Artemis, whether her daughter is spirited to the underworld to become a goddess, or whether she's actually sacrificed. Um, Clytemnestra's not real happy. So when Agamemnon comes home, uh, in the meantime, she has teamed up with his half-brother Aegisthus, and uh, there's, there's a whole saga attached to the house of Atreus, which is the, um, the house of um, Agamemnon uh, and, and the Mycenaean um, kingship. And um, a lot of it centers, you know, and, and really their, their chief problem actually centers around cannibalism, starting with pa their ancestor pa Tantalus and Pelops. Uh, and then of course Pelops committed a crime by violating the rules of hospitality um, so, and so there's, there's incest, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on in this, uh, in this saga, which, um, is, is really a separate story, but the, the point being is that it ultimately corrupts the house. 
And so when Agamemnon returns home, um, Clytemnestra makes a very big show of welcoming him. And she lays all of these sort of red garments out uh, for him to walk on so he doesn't have to walk on the ground. This, by the way, is the origin of rolling out the red carpet. And he comes into his house, and of course, it's like she's going to prepare a feast and a bath for him, and instead she stabs him to death and murders him. Okay? Um, and she and Aegisthus become, you know, kind of the tyrannical rulers of the land, which people are not happy about. Well, Orestes, who is the one son, um, uh, now his sister Electra is involved. To what degree, it depends on which drama writer you believe. In some cases, Electra is just grieving for her father. Uh, the idea of the Electra complex, by the way, as, as the complement to the Oedipus complex, comes from the idea of Electra's worship of her father, Agamemnon. Um, she is, um, you know, and in some versions, she simply tells Orestes what happens, in others, she goads him to action. And Orestes um, decides that he needs to, you know, and he's kind of goaded by the oracles of Apollo as well. You need to avenge your father's death. And to do that, you have to kill his killer, which happens to be your mother. That's a problem because matricide, which is killing your own mother, is punishable by the Erinyes. And the Erinyes do indeed pursue him, almost as manifestations of guilt. So, in the end, uh, Athena takes pity on him, and she has a jury trial, okay? You're sort of your first, um, maybe not your first, but it's, it, this is sort of Athenian democracy in action. And so there's a jury uh, that argues about his murdering of his mother. Uh, the Erinias say, well, you know, how could you cold-bloodedly kill your own mother? Uh, Apollo appears and says... Um, and, of course, Apollo doesn't really, you know, in my opinion, doesn't help because he's trying to argue that, uh, well, it's really the man who produces the child, not the woman, and the woman's not so important, which, of course, would have been the opposite of, of what the, the um, belief about the oikos was, the, the household. You know, the mother as the bearer of children was kind of the central, the central figure in um, repopulating the, um, uh, you know, uh, I just saw something odd over here. Um, you know, she's she's sort of the uh, she's she's the one that that guarantees sort of immortality of the family by bearing children and allowing the family to continue on. So um, at least in a tribal situation, she is considered to have a central role. Once you get into the idea of the city state, where you have um, the sort of divergent roles and people you know coming from other countries, and you have more diversity. Uh, there's more of a focus on the individual than on the family, but that's that again is another topic. Um, but the Eumenides is a play, and this is about the trial of Orestes, okay? Um, where the Erinyes go up against Apollo and Athena to um, condemn Orestes to you know for to the fate that they have uh, given to him. And eventually the, the votes are cast. Now the votes are split equally in half. And Athena casts the deciding vote in, in favor of Orestes. And so he is allowed to go free. I mean, he has been freed of the punishment of the Erinyes. And they are very confused. Now I'm going to read to you a bit from Aeschylus here. Um, so um, the Erinyes will say to Athena, after the judgment has been made, they say, you, you younger gods... You have written down the ancient laws, wrenched them from my grasp, and I, robbed of my birthright, suffering great with wrath, I loose my poison over the soil. Poison to match my grief comes pouring out my heart, cursing the land to burn its sterile. And now, rising up from its roots, a cancer blasting leaf and child. Now for justice, justice. By the way, justice is one of the few values that the ancient Greeks had, uh, decay. Across the face of the earth, the bloody tide comes hurling, all mankind destroyed. Moaning, only moaning, what will I do? The mockery of it, oh, unbearable. Mortified by Athens, we, the daughters of night, our power stripped, cast down. And Athena says, yield to me, no more heavy spirits, you are not defeated. The vote was tied, a verdict fairly reached with no disgrace to you, no Zeus brought luminous proof before us. He who spoke the god's oracle, he bore witness that Orestes did the work, but should not suffer harm. And now you'd vent your anger and hurt the land? Consider a moment, calm yourself. 
Never render us a barren, raining your potent showers down like spears, consuming every seed. By all my rights, I promise you your seat in the depths of the earth, yours by all rights, stationed at hearts equipped with glistening thrones covered with praise. My people will revere you. Well, the Erenyes are not really um, convinced by this, so she has a lot more um, uh, convincing to do. And uh, so they, they repeat exactly what they said before, and Athena goes on to say, you have your power, you are goddesses, but not to turn on the world of men and ravage it past cure. I put my trust in Zeus, and must I add this? I am the only god who knows the keys to the armory where his lightning bolt is sealed. No need of that, not here. Well, there's a threat. Like, I could take you down with Zeus's lightning bolt, but now we don't need to talk about that. Let me persuade you. The lethal spell of your voice never cast it down on the land and blight its harvest home. Lull asleep that salt-black wave of anger. Awesome, proud with reverence, live with me. The land is rich. And more, when its first fruits offered for heirs, the marriage rights are yours to hold forever. You will praise my words. Okay? And so the Furies protest against this as well, and Athena replies, I will bear with your anger. You are older. The years have taught you more and much more than I can know. But Zeus, I think, gave me some insight, too, that has its merits. If you leave for an alien land and alien people, now notice what she's getting at here, because remember, these are an intrafamilial group. They are interested in the family. You will come to love this land, I promise you. As time flows on, the honors flow through all. My citizens and you, throned in honor before the house of Erechtheus, which is the king of Athens, will harvest more from men and women in solemn file than you can win through throughout the mortal world. Here in our homeland, never cast the stones that wet our bloodlust. Never waste our youth, inflaming them with the burning wine of strife. Never pluck the heart of the battlecock and plant it in our people. And interestingly, by the way, this is exactly what Virgil does in the Aeneid. Um, intestine war seething against themselves. Let our wars rage on abroad with all their force to satisfy our powerful lust for fame. But as for the bird that fights at home, my curse on civil war. Okay? So Athena is saying to them, you know, are you really looking, you know, your actions are just going to sow so more discord within the household, which is exactly what you don't want. And eventually the Erinus yield to her. And she declares them the Semni, you know, the Eumenides, okay, the kindly ones. And also um, the Semni Thei, or the good goddesses, okay. And she is, um, uh, and, and so what, she, what Athena is saying is that not only are the uh, Erinus, you know, goddesses of destruction, but they are also goddesses of fertility. In other words, a family that's starting out must bring offerings to them as Semni Thei, in order that their household may be fruitful, produce children, have prosperity, and so forth. That that cannot happen without the blessing of the Erinyes. So the Erinyes are persuaded, and they do um, speak their blessings. Now, um, I have um, Sarah Isles Johnson's book again, The Restless Dead. And uh, I want to try to find this, uh, this one spot here, where she talks about uh, the Erinyes in this context. And... Um, It's a, uh, let me just see towards the end here. Okay. Um, okay, among the many things that uh, Sarah Isles Johnston talks about in terms of the role of the Erinyes, um, she talks about them as Chthonic goddesses, goddess of the underworld, okay? And, and as normally um, the Goes, or the, you know, the, the sort of, or, you know, the one who practices Goesha. Um, which is a term we, in modern times, tend to associate with things like the Key of Solomon and the 72 demons mentioned there. But Goetia is actually much older. It's an archaic Greek practice. And, and it has to do with necromancy. Um, and it has to do with not only bringing the dead to their destination, uh, but either keeping them from coming back or um, consulting them when one needs to know the future or, you know, and also with dealing with the angry dead. So Sarah Isles Johnston mentions that when dealing with the restless or angry dead, that um, Athena is now sort of assuming that role. Um, and I'm going to quote Sarah Isles Johnston, page 286 of The Restless Dead, at least on the edition that I have. Um, 
She describes her words as a um, feclaterion, or a charm, that had the same powers as a goetic uh, epoidae to enchant their listeners. What we witness at the end of the Oristaya, then, is the goddess of civic concerns adopting the skills of the goes to ensure her city's welfare. However much Aeschylus may fold it into the official cult of the Semni Theae, uh, Goetia has become a central part of the Greek polis, an art once brought into the city by the Cretan Epimenides, and now comes naturally to the goddess synonymous with the city of Athens itself. Now, what she's referring to is something called the, um, let me get the name right, uh, the Salonian Affair. Um, and this was a, <clears throat> um, a, you know, this was a, an attempt to overthrow the government of Athens. But one of the things that happened in this particular episode was that the um, temple, the temples of the Semni Thei, people were slaughtered in the temple when they were coming to make um, offerings. And this was considered to be extremely bad, an extremely bad sacrilege that, that uh, could cause major havoc in the city. And Epimenides was uh, from Crete and was a, um, you know, a goes, and, you know, at least according to this version, and, and, you know, was or at least was a prophet or someone who had um, magical abilities to deal with the underworld or communicate with it, and came and, you know, provided the solution that would, um, you know, propitiate those gods and keep the city from harm. And so <clears throat> what uh, Sarah Isles Johnson is saying is that Athena actually serves that same role towards the end. Okay. So, so this is, this is, um, one version and, um, I, I, I would like to find her, um, her discussion here of the, um, the Aaron, yes, uh, just need to, need to find where I'm at in this particular book. Cause, cause she does make an extremely important point that I have made over and over again about the Aaron, yes. Um, and of course, she mentions Dem Demeter Irenaeus again, um, <clears throat> which you know who she thinks, and, and her thinking about the story is that um, the story of Demeter um, being raped by Poseidon in the form of a horse doesn't really have anything to do with the myth of Persephone. They've kind of been uh, combined in a certain way. That um, <clears throat> Irenaeus and Demeter really are separate, but they've kind of been been merged together to kind of highlight the fact that the Erinyes' role is not only in taking children away, because the, the Erinyes are also associated with the restless dead, particularly the female restless dead, the women who die before they're able to produce children and so forth. Um, and, uh, and it supposedly, um, certainly in the Odyssey, Penelope talks about the uh, Pandariids who um, die before their wedding night and, and become assistants of the, of the Furies. And this this whole idea of them as um, as assistants of the Furies comes out of um, you know, but then also being the, the idea of combining with Demeter, who's the god goddess of agriculture and of, of growing things and fertility, um, kind of shows that they were not they were not one sided. We we tend to think of them as these these horrible, um, almost evil kind of women, and they're not evil. Um, yeah, here we go. This is, this was the section I was looking for. Um, Sarah Isles Johnson says the beginning of chapter seven, purging the polis, the Erinyes, Eumenides, and the Semini Fii. She says, I chose to begin this chapter by emphasizing Erinyes's original divinity. Okay. Because they remember they were divinities. They were portrayed as normal goddesses. They were not portrayed as something horrific until later on. Just because it compels us to recognize from the start that Erinias once was something quite different from the fearsome demonic creature whom we tend to associate with the name in later centuries. Greek religion knows of no divinity who is completely negative, completely punitive, completely injurious. Nor, until very late times, does it envision any of its gods in forms that resemble the snaky-haired, pustulant, snaggletooth monsters into which Aeschylus conversed the Erinias for their stage debut in 458 BCE. Instead, the divinities of Greek religion, like the humans whose personalities they mimic, uh, have both positive and negative traits and behave now generously, now badly, towards the mortals who depend upon them. They can be frightening upon occasion, but they never appear in forms that are physically repulsive or grossly deformed. Such an appearance is rather the mark of creatures like those discussed, she discusses in Chapter 5, such as mythic monsters as gorgons or harpies. Okay. 
So it's interesting how they become uh, these rather revered deities. We're going to find the same thing is true of Hecate, uh, who starts as an extremely revered deity and then becomes sort of a goddess of, uh, of witchcraft and, and the underworld. Um, now, one of the things, uh, another things that she mentions here, um, and I want to see if I can find the, the quote again because it's a very good one. Um, see um, because one of the things she talks about is the fact that um, the Erinyes, um one of the arguments the scholars put forth is that you don't find temples to the Erinyes. you don't find I mean you have you find you have the Semnithei temples but you don't actually have this um, you know, this, you know, they saying, well, the Erinyesque, obviously, we're not worshipped as goddesses because we don't have a, um, you know, a, a temples to them. And what Sarah Isles Johnston points out, very correctly, is she says, Erinyes is kind of a title. She said, and, and it's, um, yeah, here we go, I found it now. Um, when she talks about um, references to the Erinyes and the cult paid to them, she says, We must take all these reports seriously, however, even as we remain cautious about accepting all their details at face value. Dismissal of them is usually based on two things in addition to their narrative settings. The first is the absence of the name Erinyes in any cult inscription. But as the very nature of cult is used to, is to use every means possible to flatter and persuade the deity into cooperating, it would be surprising indeed if any official document called these goddesses by the title associated with their negative side. This would make about as much sense as addressing one's dean when asking for a raise as you tight-fisted bureaucrat, however often one may call him that or worse in private. Cult would be paid to deities of a dual nature under the name of Eumenides or something similar in the hopes that they would take the hint and look kindly upon their worshippers just as cult would be paid to Hades under the name of Pluton, which of course has to be that one who brings wealth. Okay, and, uh, and, and this is an important thing to remember. You know, the gods have various aspects, and that if you are looking to appease the god, then you are going to call it by, by kindly names. You're not going to call it by uh, its, its more um, frightening manifestations. Um, this also was done by the Romans, by the way, in reference to the um, sort of the restless dead, were referred to as demanus, the kindly ones. And it's it's um, and this is also the idea that you don't want the dead coming back and either polluting where you live or or, or hurt, you know coming to your home and wreaking havoc. Um, the, they, the the Romans had many festivals. Uh, they had the Lemuria. They had the Parentalia. They have different uh, different festivals that the whole idea was to appease their ancestors and to keep the dead, you know, to say, hi, you know, we respect you, but please stay over there. Um, and Ovid talks about certain rituals in particular um, that were used to, um, you know, that, that were performed by the heads of the family to keep the dead out of their homes. So very similarly, the Arrhenius are, are treated this way. Now that's, that's the Oristaya. That's... Um, also the ancient conception, the archaic conception of the Erinyes. So what happens, what happens later? Now, as we know, um, the Romans adopted a fair amount of uh, Greek mythology. Uh, they didn't really have a mythology of their own. They're, um, they're similar to other groups in that sense, or at least it wasn't a mythology written down. Um, they did have a tremendous number of oracles, but they didn't have, and they, and they were, um, they, they had a lot of local spirits, but they ended up adopting um, a lot of, uh, at least certain parts, if you read Livy, he talks about um, how, you know, uh, the king, one of the first Roman kings, Numa, adopted, with, selectively adopted from, uh, not only from Greek drama, but from Greek, um, Greek myth and belief about the gods. And um, the Erinyes become either the Furies or the Dire, D-I-R-A-E, with Dire is a plural, okay, Dira would be the singular, D-I-R-A. And we get the word dire from that, okay? A dire prediction, which of course has to do with doom. Uh, in Dante's Inferno, we see the, the dire at the, at the gates of Dis, okay? So, um, you know, you, you, you have them as these kind of uh, terrible women. And of course, um, in Virgil's Aeneid, uh, the dire or the, the furies are portrayed, you know, the, the three women, um, 
are, you know, Tisiphone, Megera, Electo, are portrayed as um, punishing uh, wicked souls in the underworld. Now, and again, it's important to recognize that by the time of Virgil, this idea of punishment after death existed. It did not exist in the time of the ancient Greeks. And it's not that there weren't punishments for certain folk in the underworld, um, but they had to do something really, really bad to offend the gods in order to end up in the underworld. And I think only maybe five or six people are mentioned as ever suffering punishments in the depths of Tartarus. Okay, uh, So the Arrhenius were not about that until we get there. The Aeneid also, there's the rather um, horrific section in which um, when Aeneas, who is, who is the son of the goddess Venus, um, or Aphrodite in the, um, in the Greek, uh, is coming, he is left, he, he's considered to be a, a Trojan warrior, even though he's not really officially from Troy. He, he kind of gets involved in the war when uh, Achilles takes his sheep. Um, and he fights on the side of Troy. And he eventually escapes at the end. Um, in the Aeneid, there's the how they escaped the city. He left with his wife, Crusa, and his father, Anchises, on, who he carried on his shoulders. Um, but his wife died uh, in the way. His son, Iulus, too, who, by the way, is considered to be the progenitor of the line of the Iulus family, which you might associate with Julius or Julius Caesar. Um, and by the time... The Aeneid was written, um, it was Caesar Augustus, um, who, was the, who was the emperor and considered to be from the Aeolus line. So, um, so there's definitely a, um, this, uh, this glorifying of, of that particular um, patrician Roman family. Patricians, of course, were the ones who were the, the upper class, the elite. And... Um, so they, so, you know, and, and Aeneas is a very pious sort. I mean, he, he follows omens. He, he practices piety along the way. And he gets a lot of messages along the way. He's, he's, he's not um, sort of your hardened um, reality-based force. For he's, he's definitely much more emotional and much more pious and much more intuitive, perhaps because he is a son of the goddess Venus, okay, who is the goddess of love. And uh, <clears throat> when he finally comes to the city where he's destined to marry the princess and he is destined to um, kind of found a precursor to Rome, um, the, the, the princess there, um, <clears throat> uh, Lavinia, she's already uh, engaged to um, a man called Turnus. And Turnus is willing to say, okay, you know, this pro prophesized foreigner has shown up, I'm ready to step aside, but the goddess Juno who is akin to Hera in the um, Greek pantheon, uh, is not going to let it go with this. She hates Aeneas. She, she hates the Trojans. There's many reasons for this, which I'll get to when I actually have an episode on Hera. But she is, um, she is determined to bring him, even though she knows ultimately what, what fate has in store for him, she's not going to let him go down without a fight. Uh, there's actually a whole article called... Um, you know, Juno's wrath is, is kind of being, making her kind of like a Satan-like figure or a trickster figure in this whole thing. Uh, and she makes a little bit more sense in this context, honestly. Um, but, but, you know, and in the end, of course, she yields and says, okay, you know, her only condition is that um, the Latin, that the people of that um, city continue to speak uh, the Latin language, of, you know, of, of Rome and not uh, take on the language of the Trojans or take on the Greek language. That's her only condition. Um, <clears throat> so she eventually yields to Jupiter or Jove, her husband, uh, who is the equivalent of Zeus, uh, in that regard. But what? But the but the the role of the Furies here is that um, when Turnus decides he's not going to fight, Juno sends them to plant snakes in his chest. Okay, and there's a rather um, rather graphic scene in the Aeneid where um, they talk about this, and this plants the, the rage and the violence and the passion of war. Now, this is kind of the opposite of what you see in the Eumenides, where um, Athena says, you know, you know you, you, not only does she not want to create civil war, sometimes you need to create war against the outsiders. But it's almost it's almost contrary. Do not do not plant the, um, the 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 seeds of war, the snakes of war, into somebody's breast. And this is probably where Virgil got the idea for that happening to begin with. Um, and then the Furies appear again as old women trying to get them to burn down the um, Aeneas' ships. But of course, 
The goddess Kibbele, in this case, intervenes because it's made from wood. The chips are made from wood from her sacred grove, and she won't allow them to burn. And that, the omen of watching, setting ships on fire and watching them not burn should have been enough to freak them out, but, um, but Turnus, because he's being driven on by the Furies, continues on to a senseless war. And the Aeneid is quite different from the Iliad. Um, not that the Iliad doesn't have its sad moments or its, its poignant moments, but the Aeneid is really about how youth, the life, lives of youth are wasted in these ridiculous... Um, you know, escapades for, for glory or for, you know, the things. It really casts a critical eye on war. And it's not surprising because Rome had come out of a, several years of civil war and now Augustus was the emperor who sort of united everything. And it was the idea of, isn't it good to now be back in the Pax Romana or the Roman peace and not be engaged in war? Um, so, so the horrors of war are really emphasized there and the fact that, you know, he came in peace and instead they slaughtered all these innocent animals and innocent boys and, and everything else. Um, and in the end, um, Aeneas actually kills Turnus in a very um, unmerciful kind of a way. And one wonders whether or not the Aeneid was meant to be ended that way, given the tone of the rest of it. Um, but I'm not, But we're not entirely sure that Virgil was ever really finished with the Aeneid. And it, we do know that in um, sort of Virgil's, I don't know, I guess you would call it his last will and testament, he didn't want the Aeneid to be published. He wanted to be burned. Um, and whether that's because it wasn't done and he didn't like the ending, or whether he felt it was too much of a kiss-up to the Emperor Augustus, who did like Virgil a great deal, um, and at the end of his life maybe he regretted that, uh, we don't know. But we do know that he, his wishes were not acknowledged, and so therefore we still have this um, this piece. But it shows you the difference in the role of the Furies between um, what their ancient role, um, where they they kind of are the these um, establishers of justice and these boundary setters, but that also are you know if you propitiate them you know propitiate them that you will have uh, prosperity and, and your family will multiply. <clears throat> the fine line there between child death and, and increasing your family, and uh, also that they promise not to make young girls into aori or to take them away before they they have an, they're eligible to have children because that creates a whole separate kind of ghost. Again, that's another episode that we'll have, but. Um, yeah, but the Furies, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of associated with this, so they're very dangerous figures, but they're also very respected. And they represent that sort of, you know, what we think of as a scary dark feminine energy that, you know, it's not necessarily, again, now we're seeing it's not necessarily, an e you know, it doesn't have to be an evil energy. We only perceive it as evil when it acts in ways that are, we feel are harmful or contrary to um, our desires or purposes as humans. But, um... It's not always, um, you know, but, but they're not, you know, but again, this, we, I, what I'm trying to dispel is the whole idea that dark goddesses are evil. They're not evil. That's not their point. That's not their purpose. Okay. And uh, certainly um, the, the Erinyes slash Fury slash Deirai slash Humanities slash Semnithei are perfect examples of deities that, um, that that definitely are complex and multi-dimensional. So we need to get away from this ethical idea of what they are. They are there to represent the consequences of, of certain actions, and um, you know, and, and sort of the reflection and consideration of those. Um, I have a few other notes that I want to do before I end this uh, this week's podcast. Um, uh, one of the things I think about with, the, with them being represented with snakes, just like Medusa and some of the others. Medusa's probably going to be the subject of the next podcast that I do. Um, there's, certainly there's the motif of the old woman or the crone. Um, so there's this idea of sort of this ancient wisdom or, or the knowledge that uh, is maintained by these, these, these much older goddesses. And snakes, of course, we don't want to forget their connection to, if you think in Hinduism, for instance, of their connection to the, the Shakti, the Kundalini, the serpent that goes up the spine and that, you know, what we leave our sort of um, more base and primal instincts behind towards something higher and more spiritual. Um, the, the idea of the snake as negative is definitely a biblical thing. Um, it's not a, 
Um, and anyway, it may be in certain cultures that are that are similar, but in many culture, most cultures, many cultures, the snake is of actually positive uh, image. So um, the appearance of the snake um, does not necessarily have to be uh, a negative, and we can talk more about that when we talk about Medusa. Um, they, uh, I have a note that they maintain social order and purity, but nothing to do with sexual purity. Um, dead souls that assisted them were women who died before they could have children, okay? Um, and so, uh, yeah, and, and Sarah Isles Johnson actually mentions in the book, she talks about the idea that Arrhenius as, um, you know, Apollo refers to them kind of as hags. Um, you know, who nobody would want. We, how, how often have we heard this? You know, oh, you know, I didn't rape her because uh, she's, she's not the person, she she's ugly, she's not what I would have wanted. You know, we've heard that, that before. Not that it matters to men who are trying to get power over somebody, you know, if that's, if that's their intention through rape, okay? I'm not saying that men, you know, generally we, we have sex with people we're attracted to, but, you know, you understand what I'm saying. Um... But they were, um, but the idea is that the Erinyes maintain kind of a sexual purity by choice. Because remember, originally they just looked like any other female goddess. They were probably just as attractive and everything else, but they maintain their virginity by choice in order to um, help maintain boundaries and, and healthy relationships within the family. So that's something else to be thought about and considered when we talk about the Erinyes. Um, I'm, I'm sort of looking at my time here. I think I've just about hit 45 minutes. So I, I think we'll stop here. Um, certainly I welcome any questions either on the Cathonia podcast page on Facebook, uh, on Instagram at Cathonia podcast, which I think is in one word, same with Twitter. Um, and also I have a YouTube on the YouTube channel, which is just Cathonia. Uh, please feel free to leave comments there as well. Um, I will mention briefly my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Cathonia. Uh, if you're interested in the work that I'm doing towards sort of um, deconstructing these feminine narratives so that we can kind of, in a way, my hope is that we will look more broadly at our cultural narratives um, and about what our assumptions are about the roles of men and women and, um, and other things as well. I mean, these, these narratives about the feminine touch on far more than just, you know, women's rights or the roles of women. It also touches on men and, and the rights of men and the things that they, they experience. And you also could, could expand this into ideas about race and so forth. So um, I'm hoping that I can stimulate some thought and some conversation here, um, you know, kind of deconstructing our ideas about right and wrong and good and bad and um, what our sort of uh, storied folklore mythological associations are with those. So if you're interested in this work and you would like to contribute to Patreon, um, and by the way, I've got two new patrons this month, and thank both of you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, more people will become interested and that support will build. Um, so with that, um, I thank you again for your attention, and I will see you in a couple of weeks.